ओम सदाशिव सारंभां शंकराचार्य मध्यमा अस्मदाचार्य पर्यता वंदे गुरु परंपरा ओम so namaste viana we are happy to be joined here by kalvai venkat ji and uh, he is the author of the book what every hindu should know about christianity and uh, we are here to discuss this book today and i'm in the process of uh, almost completing it myself and it's definitely an imperative read especially for hindus as the title suggests so the way we going to do this is that uh, the questions will roughly be divided into five sections which the book covers and uh, in the end we'll have a general q and a from the audience so you know and also in the meanwhile feel free to interject as kalvaji suggested that if you have any questions comments or uh, required clarifications uh, we can uh, do it uh, while we are still covering the questions as well so you know let's just begin with the first question and and before that could you please give us an introduction about what prompted this book and what need does it really fulfill in our society Absolutely. Uh, first of all, namaste and good morning. Thanks a lot, Prashant, for inviting me on this Google Hangout, uh, and thanks everyone for attending this. Uh, and what prompted me to write this book? Uh, the first one is I have been writing on uh, matters related to dharma for more than 15 years now. So I have written books. I have contributed to anthologies. I have written a lot of blogs, a lot of audiences uh, for several years, more than 15 years, and. even on christianity i have been writing for more than 10 years so in that sense this book is a continuation of the effort i have been putting into this subject for a long time what motivated me uh, if you look at the samarpana section of my book i dedicated to sitaram goel and coindra adilst i consider myself a student uh, in the school of sitaram goel and coindra adilst so the approach they have always taken is a very scientific approach a very reasonable approach which is highly consonant with the way traditional hindus approached other ideologies other beliefs or for that reason any subject so i am a very big fan of the sitaram goel and coindradel school of uh, analysis and i consider myself a student of that school and one of the reasons which motivated me to write this book is uh, sitaram goel has written some phenomenal treatises examining christianity and that was in the 1980s and then coindra elst uh, wrote uh, the psychology of prophetism uh, that was written in the 90s however um, there was not a single comprehensive book that touches upon everything starting from uh, linguistics to philology to neuroscience to reason uh, leverage all of these tools to examine christianity comprehensively end to end so such a book was lacking i think if i may argue such a book is lacking in the marketplace itself and definitely such a book is lacking from the hindu perspective one of the motives for me to write this book and uh, another reason is more than a century ago we had a couple of towering scholars in india one was chattampi swami he lived in kerala and he was a great scholar of advaita vedanta and he wrote a very powerful and critical uh, treatise examining christianity and uh, there was another scholar from tamil nadu his name was armuga pillai navalar he was a great shaiva scholar uh, and uh, he also wrote a highly critical text of christianity and the bible in particular however those traditional approaches have been few and far between some of them have been highly commendable especially coindradel sitaram goel romswarup and uh, chattampi swami and uh, armuga pillai navalar but they have been few and far between so the way i look at my book is we have to build upon all of these foundations but we have to bring in knowledge cutting edge knowledge from cognitive science so for example there are recent researches uh, uh, by 
the scientists and doctors from the Harvard Medical School on the psychology of Jesus. All of those need to be brought in and we need to update the uh, body of research. So these are the motives for me to write this book. Oh, that's brilliant. And uh, definitely we can see that it's fulfilling a very uh, deep and potent need. So let's begin with the first question, really, uh, starting with the basics. So what exactly is Christianity as it exists in modern society? And how did it evolve from the Old Testament? All right. So Christianity at the core is an apocalyptic religion. Okay. Apocalypse means waiting for the end of the world. So Christianity prophecies the end of the world and imminent or the immediate end of the world. Okay. And that is the belief which existed in Christianity nearly 2000 years ago. And that's the belief which is extremely central to Christianity today. So if you were to describe Christianity in a single line, it is an apocalyptic religion. And why did this apocalyptic belief come into existence? So when you go back to around 2200 years, uh, that's a couple of centuries before Christianity was born, uh, Judaism was the predominant religion of what we can call Palestine or Israel. So the Jewish people uh, started writing books like the book of Daniel in the Old Testament or the Jewish Bible. So these books anticipated the return of the Messiah. The reason for that was the Jewish people were subjugated. They were subjugated by a lot of others, by the Assyrians, by the um, uh, Romans, by a lot of other people. And then they were always having a colonized people status. And they were having this innate urge to fight back and to liberate themselves. And the way they transferred that thought was onto a Messiah. A Messiah means someone who will come and liberate them. So they said a Messiah, a Jewish, a Jewish Messiah will come and he will conquer all the enemies of uh, the Jewish people and he will liberate the Jews. So that is the uh, background for this apocalyptic belief. So these apocalyptic beliefs started and there were numerous apocalyptic uh, faiths or strands or traditions within Judaism. And Christianity was one of the many that came into existence. So all of these started with the belief that the world is going to end very soon. And hence, a Messiah will come, he will selectively save the Jewish people at the expense of everybody else. That was the core of the belief of this apocalyptic uh, uh, you know, thought process. Now, how is Christian apocalyptic belief different from that of the other Jewish apocalyptic beliefs? So Christian belief also added two important aspects to that. One aspect is it said, Everyone, every uh, person is born in sin. They called it the original sin. Christianity doesn't define it. Okay, but then there are enough clues in the Bible and a lot of other Christian traditions as to what it is. It effectively means uh, everyone is a sinner because you are a product of sex. Okay, so uh, a man and a woman, uh, they had a sexual relationship and a child was born and hence sex is dirty, it's filthy. That's a Christian belief, right? And hence everyone is born in sin. That's what it translates into. Then it also identified who the Messiah is. It said the Messiah who is prophesied in the Jewish Bible or the Old Testament is none other than Jesus Christ. And then it argued uh, that if you accept Jesus Christ as your savior, then you will be cleansed of your sins and then you will be liberated or you'll be given salvation and then you will enjoy that in heaven for eternity. If you do not, then you will suffer. So that in a nutshell is Christianity as it was practiced 2000 years ago and as it is practiced today. So in many ways, Christianity only fills the gap of the unfulfilled prophecy of the Jews. 
in a sense that's correct and it also fills the and even the christian prophecy is unfulfilled okay but uh, the entire the entire system is uh, uh, if i were to give an analogy which may sound a little bit condescending but that's not the intent here so uh, if you go back to the bible there are stories right there is a story that says uh, there is a talking serpent right the snake talks to eve right it uh, talks to adam and eve and then it tells eve that you know uh, don't eat from the tree of knowledge now this is very opposite of what we see in hinduism but that's not the point i'm getting into so in hinduism the pursuit of uh, jnana uh, and the knowledge is the very core of the dharmic traditions uh, but that's let's not go into that but the interesting point is there is a talking snake and then this talking snake uh, asks you not to eat from the tree of knowledge and hence uh, the entire concept of original sin is born out of the stories now if i were to take an analogy in india uh, most of us grew up reading a series of books called chandamama right and in chandamama you'll have stories where you know an elephant or a cobra or you know a lot of other animals would be talking to a princess and all of these things and even a small child right even a 6 7 year old child doesn't take those things literally okay we enjoy those stories and then we outgrow those stories okay but the entire bible in that sense is very much like a chandamama like story but the christians took it too literally okay instead of outgrowing that they said now let's believe this literally and let's try to live our lives according to this story i see that makes a lot of sense so apart from the if i may use the expression the digestion of judaism what are some of the other pagan faiths that were assimilated into christianity and uh, jesus was placed in the center of all of them got it uh so i'll start with one um clarification here right so when we talk of pagan faith most people think that there was a religion called paganism right which is not true okay uh, what really happened was pagan is a word that comes from latin uh, pagani okay so pagani means uh, farmers or people who lived in villages suburbs etc okay that was by and large a condescending term right and like we use the word you know a village bumpkin today okay it was some somewhat of a similar uh, term uh, which uh, uh, was used by the city dwellers who had by the time converted to christianity and then they called the villagers the farmers and other people pagan however what we call pagan religions uh, have a lot of similarity to hinduism okay not in every sense but in some senses okay uh, in terms of geography what we call the pagan religions they covered a broad swath of territory okay starting from the roman empire to the ancient greek world and all the way to alexandria in egypt okay and even beyond uh, but this was a very broad area it covered and then there were a lot of different belief systems and traditions so for example they had a number of gods okay uh, just like we have in hinduism we have a lot of devatas they had many gods okay within the pagan religions and there was not a conflict okay there could be a priest who is a priest of isis okay there could be a priest who is a priest of diana okay but uh, there was not a conflict between one and the other so most of the pagan temples would have altars for many deities okay there in fact a very interesting point is they often had altars for, for the unknown deity okay because we know there could be other gods which which we do not know of and let us set up this altar for this unknown deity okay or this unknown god or goddess okay they had that and very interestingly christianity takes advantage of this uh, broad mindedness and accommodating spirit of the pagan people or the hellenic people i call them hellenic because it was called the hellenistic world or the hellenic people so 
the Apostle Paul, when he uh, speaks to his audience, he writes, uh, and then he says, look, uh, your own uh, temples have an altar for this unknown God, and this unknown God is none other than Jesus. So they, he takes advantage of that and then he propagates the message. He looks for, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, as foot in the door and then he uses that to get across to the audience. Now, the pagan people are also extremely liberal and uh, the pagan kings were also very liberal. So, for example, there was a uh, king in the 4th century. So, uh, his name is Julian. So, he was called Emperor Julian. And Julian uh, even uh, uh, volunteered to rebuild the Jewish temple that had been destroyed by the Christians and had been destroyed by the Romans. And uh, so Julian volunteered to rebuild those temples. So it was a very accommodating culture. And there was another aspect of the Hellenic traditions, and they, which was the philosophical aspect, which was in a lot of ways similar to uh, in our own uh, Vedantic traditions and other traditions, even though I won't say it's, uh, it's, not, it's not an apple-to-apple -apple comparison. Okay? So... You had a lot of those philosophers. Of course, every one of us know the names of Socrates or Plato and others, uh, but there were many others. So there was a philosophical system, and there was a very rich tradition of debate, learning, and you know engaging each other. Okay, so these are the various uh, pagan traditions. Now, a uh, lot of these pagan traditions or the Hellenic traditions uh, had many uh, beliefs. Okay, many. Uh, literary motives, okay, and then they had a lot of traditions which Christianity absorbed. Okay, so Coindrodel summarizes a lot of those. Okay, he does a very thorough job of summarizing many of those in his writings. Uh, but one of them is um, uh, the ideas that were inherited from Buddhism and they were uh, incorporated in Christianity. So this may be surprising to a lot of people. How did it get the ideas from Buddhism? Right. So there was a very active trade across the Silk Road from India through Central Asia all the way up to the Near East. Okay, and a lot of those ideas flowed into Alexandria and to the Greek Empire. Okay? And they were very familiar with the Buddhist ideas. So, uh, Coindradels talks about uh, Buddhist, uh, there are a lot of practices in Christianity, there are a lot of narratives in Christianity. In the Bible, uh, Jesus walks on water. Right? And then his uh, uh, disciples are uh, surprised, they are amazed, and then he announces, it's me. Okay? Then, there is another narrative where, you know, Jesus says, do not judge others. And then there is another narrative in the Bible where uh, Jesus is accepting water from uh, someone uh, who, is of a lower, who is from a lower strata of society. Okay? All of these stories come from Buddhism. They all come from a text called the Mahanirvana Sutra. Okay? They are taken from Buddhism and then they are reincorporated into Christianity. Then the tonsuring of the Catholic nuns, right? The Catholic nuns, they shave their heads, they tonsure themselves. And once again, this is a practice which did not come from uh, the pagan religions. It did not even come from uh, Judaism. Okay, where did this come from? This came from uh, the uh, Bodha religion, from Buddhism. Okay, in Buddhism, in the Sangha, uh, in the monastic orders, the nuns, they always tonsured their head. And the uh, monks also, they tonsured their head. That practice came from Buddhism into Christianity. And then you will find the Christians use the rosary when they chant. Okay, so this rosary uh, on the beads, right, chanting on the beads, it once again comes from Buddhism. Okay, so like this, lot of these features are taken from Buddhism and incorporated into uh, Christianity. And uh, how did this happen? Because there were a section of people called the therapeutic. Okay, that's why we use the word therapeutic, right, which means something which cures. So there were a lot of these uh, therapeutic who were influenced by Buddhism, but who lived in Alexandria and what you can broadly call the Hellenic Empire, 
they had uh, you know a, a model that school of thought of the lot of buddhist ideas and then they were also practicing as doctors since they were called therapute and in fact linguistically therapute comes from theraputta a poly word okay which means son of the elder okay in the sangha everyone is considered son of the elder okay and hence the word theraputta and from there comes uh, therapute okay so that's how the idea started flowing so these people are practicing lot of ideas they had borrowed from buddhism and some from hinduism too and they were practicing those and when they all converted to christianity over a period of couple of centuries those ideas were incorporated into christianity and today they look like christian ideas then if i were to add one more uh, coinrodels also talks about the idea of trinity so in christianity for example uh, the divine is portrayed as a trinity right the father the son and the holy ghost even christians do not know what the holy ghost is okay you can ask the pope you can ask anyone you can read all the books they do not know what the holy ghost means okay and uh, even the idea of father and son is extremely confusing okay so because it is also in a way uh, very very uh, uh, vulgar because the father uh, impregnates the virgin mary and then uh, jesus is born as a son and then jesus says in the bible the father and i are one okay so which means uh, jesus is a product of an incestuous union with the virgin mary right in a, but uh, regardless the concept of trinity is a very pagan idea it's an idea very common to the pagan people as well as to the hindus the buddhists and others because we always visualize the world uh, in the form of a trinity right so for example we have uh, you know uh, shiva brahma vishnu and then even when you go back to you know the vedic times you have the uh, concept of you know indra nasatya and all of these right so uh, you have the concept of trinity okay so the concept of trinity was very prevalent among the pagan people and christianity borrows these ideas and it incorporates those into christianity so the way christianity digested ideas from others was first it will resist an idea if it is uh, a threat to christianity Okay. so for example uh, in the very early parts of christian history we do not hear much about the virgin mary okay we do not hear about in the about her in the first century that much but by the time we come to the second and third century by the time christianity was on the ascendancy they were no longer facing a threat from the local pagan religions because christianity was on the ascendancy and especially in the eastern empire on along the mediterranean coast christianity was already a dominant religion and uh, hence they were looking at a goddess of the sea worshiped by the fishermen okay she was called stella maris okay and then she is uh, uh, you know uh, uh, through an inculturation process taken adopted and incorporated into christianity and uh, eventually she becomes the virgin mary okay or in other words the virgin mary of christianity is given attributes of stella maris incorporated and hence made appealing to the local people and this is not only unique uh, in fact if i may add, just add one more thought to that this is not only unique in the pagan world okay uh, this is very much similar uh, this this process is happening all the time in india too so for example you have uh, the sahitya academy prize winner uh, jody cruz right so jody cruz uh, is a christian by birth and then uh, he is uh, uh uh he is also you know a very uh, powerful thinker and then he uh, narrates how uh, the fishermen of south india were converted to christianity and the way they converted was uh, they knew that all the fishermen worshiped uh, the goddess uh, kumari 
Okay, that's why you have this place called Kanyakumari, right? So they worship the goddess Kumari. And then they always had the belief that uh, goddess Kumari will protect them when they go fishing on the seas or when they go trading on in pearls on seas. And then when the Christians converted them uh, to Christianity, they gave all these attributes to Virgin Mary. And now the story is, uh, you know, Vedankani, who is, you know, uh, uh, Virgin Mary and other... Um, forms of Virgin Mary will be protecting the fishermen when they go on the sea. So the way they always work is when, when they find a particular goddess or god or motif, a threat to Christianity, they always abuse that god or goddess. But the moment it's no longer a threat, they absorb all of those attributes and practice enculturation incorporated in Christianity. And that's what they did with the pagan cultures too. That's very crafty. Um, so... Uh... This is very insightful because we also often see symbolism of like Jesus being presented as a yogi, and in South yeah. India especially, he's presented as like the eleventh avatar of Vishnu. So now, now I re really see the connection between what you're saying that you know, yeah. anytime there's something good in a culture, they digest it, and if they find something incompatible, they'll criticize or abuse it. So, um, That's correct. Another question I want to ask about is: uh, Could you share some background about Constantine and the Council of Nicaea that led to the Nicene Creed, and uh, uh, just some more thoughts on that? Absolutely. So uh, there's a lot of misperception or misunderstanding about what Constantine did. Okay. So most people think uh, Constantine was uh, a very fanatical Christian or that, that uh, he uh, played a central role in you know, putting together the current version of the New Testament or the Bible. Right? Uh, none of this is true. So uh, Bart Ehrman, uh, who is one of the leading academics uh, uh, in, from the University of North Carolina, has written extensively about this. Uh, but I'll give a quick summary of this. In short, uh, there was a lot of tussle between the western and the eastern part of the um, empire. Okay? So in the uh, late 3rd and the early 4th centuries. So in the late 3rd century, there was an occasional persecution of the Christians. Not because of religious reasons, but mainly because they were seen as a threat to the empire. Okay, so they would be indulging in uh, insurrections and other activities or they would not pay uh, obeisance to the king and to the deities and hence they were seen as a threat. So there was a limited persecution. However, in the eastern part of the empire, uh, there was a very strong Christian population. Eastern part is Constantinople and other places. right? So there was a very, very strong Christian population. So Constantine, like any other king, was also an opportunist. Right? He was looking for an opportunity to become uh, the Caesar. Okay? And he knew that uh, the eastern part of the empire has a very strong Christian presence. And hence, if he accommodated them, uh, then he is going to get their support and he could grow in strength. So he, he, becomes, uh, so he doesn't really become a Christian in the sense we understand it today. Okay? So there, was, uh, there were different sects of Christianity at that time. And there was one called the Arian sect. Okay, A R I A N. Okay, Arian sect. Uh, Arian sect. And then Constantine uh, remained a follower of the Arian sect until the end. Whereas the rest of the Christians considered that uh, heresy. Okay, so they were opposed to Christianity, or the mainstream Christianity was opposed to that. The Vatican, uh, as we call it today, or the Roman Church, uh, or the Roman bishops were opposed to that. Okay, and uh, that was the sect that Constantine followed. And another thing was, uh, Constantine uh, just wanted to settle one thing. He wanted to settle all the bickering and fight among all the Christians. Because there are many sects of Christianity. 
and each one of them would fight the other and hence he convened the council of Nicaea and he said uh, all of you come together and then you agree upon what is going to be the uh, what is going to form the canon of the Christian religion right uh, what all texts will become the canon of the Christian religion and the way set, they settled it was they fought with each other they beat each other up okay it was not an intellectual debate it was not like a debate between Ami Mamsaka and the Vedantin or any one of these things so they they were beating each other up that's the way they did it okay uh, it'll almost look like you know you were witnessing a scuffle that's going on in the Rajya Sabha today right that was the kind of behavior they were all putting up uh, and uh, Constantine had absolutely no interest in any of those things and even towards the end of the reign of Constantine the coins that he printed, uh, they tell us, uh, you know, he was still a worshipper of the sun god, okay, and he was still paying respect to the sun god. So, in other words, Constantine really did not care much about uh, the Christian uh, theology or about Christianity uh, in the sense a follower would care about, and he was more interested in using Christianity to become powerful, become a powerful as a king. That's all he was interested in. So that's the role Constantine played. However, um, Constantine was a blessing in disguise for the Christians. The reason was, just before Constantine uh, came to power, uh, the Christians had experienced limited persecution. I use the word limited persecution because that is a myth that you know Christianity was a persecuted religion all along. That was not true. Okay, the pagan emperors, the Caesars, they never persecuted you for religion. They only persecuted you if you opposed the empire. Okay, so some of the Christians were uh, perceived as not being loyal to the Caesar and hence they were persecuted. However, when uh, Constantine took over as the emperor, he immediately gave a lot of freedom to the Christians. He supported them with royal funding. He built churches for them. And all of this gave them a foundation from where they could attack the pagan religions and they could eventually, over the next 40 to 50 years, have all of the pagan religions proscribed or banned and make it extremely difficult for the pagan slaves. So that in a way, was the blessing in disguise for Christians that Constantine came to power. And so even the, the solar god that he worshipped, Sol Invictus, it came to be yeah. uh, completed with Jesus, right, after a point? Absolutely. Uh, because uh, the Christian belief is, uh, it's, it's a monotheistic religion. Okay, It accepts the concept of Trinity, but still, Jesus is the only god, right? And the Trinity itself is all fused together into one God and then hence worshipping sun God is completely anti-Christian but the uh, coins and other things that he, were, he was printing Constantine was still printing those of the sun God. So what are some of the key points of the Nicene Creed? So uh, uh, all of that boils down to this right and uh, that uh, everyone is, boiling, uh, is born in original sin and then uh, you get your salvation only by uh, accepting Jesus and Jesus was born of a virgin uh, and hence is free from all of the sins. Okay, So in other words, uh, it's a decree or it's a dictate or a fatwa for telling that Jesus is the exclusivist savior of every one of you and you are a sinner and hence if you accept Jesus then you will be saved or if you do not then you will be condemned to hell. Okay, so that's the gist of the Nicene Creed. So I think it's also important to highlight that they came up with these conclusions as a majority win. So it wasn't through dialectical debates as you suggested, but just 
you know, it was a statistical outcome of the majority of Christians who ended up like winning that argument or debate. So this is very different from what we are used to because in our Hindu traditions, you don't come up with truth based on what the majority believes. So that I, I is find that also correct. very psychologically different. Yeah, exactly. So the, the way I would characterize this, I, if I were to contrast the two, right, the Hindu way of thinking is very similar to how the scientists would think today. Right or great musicians would think today. Right, you don't decide who the greatest musician is. You don't say Tanzin was a great musician uh, because you know everybody you know raised their hands and they voted for that. Right, but those are done. Or we say Bala Saraswati is the greatest dancer of the last two centuries, not because we did a show of hands. Probably some Bollywood actress would get the vote in that case. Right, but we say this because. People who are really knowledgeable about uh, Natya Shastra, you know, people who are knowledgeable about dance and music, you know, they do a lot of analysis, they do a lot of discussion, and purely based on technical merit, we say, well, Bala Sarasti was the greatest dancer we had, and uh, or we say Tansin was the greatest musician, or we say Muhammad Rafi was a great singer of the last century. So we come up with all of these things not based on uh, a show of hands, and in that sense, uh, the Hindu tradition is very similar to uh, the scientific. Uh, you know, approach, right? Because scientists do not uh, vote as to, you know, which is the right theory, which is the right inference. The way they do that is they argue, okay, they qualify their statements, they look for proof, and then they put all of these things together, then emerges a theory out of all of this, right? Uh, on the other hand, uh, the entire Christian approach, as in the case of Nicene Creed uh, or in the Council of Nicaea, uh, was all of that was just a show of hands or it was just, you know, mobs coming together, uh, indulging in a slanging match and uh, beating each other up and, you know, saying, look, this is the uh, doctrine that should prevail from henceforth. I see. So this directly takes me to the next question. Uh, your book talks about cognitive dissonance, confirmation bias and selective attention. So how do they work in the context of practicing Christians? Absolutely. So what I am going to do is I will start with uh, defining these terms, right? I am not going to give a textbook definition, but I will kind of introduce these terms, okay? Uh, but I will do all of that using one example, okay? Uh, the example I use is the prophecy, okay? So the prophecy of second coming, okay? So in the Bible, uh, Jesus' prophecies, he very soon I will return, okay? I am going to die, but I, when I die, uh, within no time, before the end of your generation, I will return. So a generation is considered to be something around 27 years and let's be generous, let's give it 30 years. In other words, Jesus said, within 30 years, my second coming would happen, which means I would first die, then I would resurrect, then I would come back, right? Uh, I will return in full glory and power. So, uh, so, uh, so that is uh, the message that uh, Jesus gives out, okay? And now, if you are a Christian, this prophecy was proven false because Jesus did not come back within 30 years. He did not come back within 300 years. He did not come back within a millennium. And uh, 2000 years have passed and Jesus has not come back. And now if you are a Christian, if you are a faithful person and if you think that the Bible is the word of God and everything Jesus told is truth and that you trust Jesus, what would you feel? You will feel a sense of unease when you read this, right? It will put doubt in your mind, okay? Is Jesus telling telling the truth? Should I be trusting Jesus? So this is called cognitive dissonance, okay? The feeling of uneasiness that you feel when some of your cherished beliefs is challenged by facts. Some of your cherished beliefs are challenged by reality. So you feel a sense of uneasiness and that is called cognitive dissonance. 
and people deal with cognitive dissonance in very different ways sometimes they will try to uh, alter their beliefs but that happens very rarely okay sometimes they will say you know there are very honest people uh, they have done it and they will read all of these things and they will say wait a minute i read the bible and uh, hence uh, everything jesus says is false and hence i am no, no longer a christian i alter my belief and then i become a rationalist okay or i become a buddhist or i become a hindu it could be anything uh, but that happens extremely rarely only a very few people do that but for a lot of people they have invested a lot because they were born into a family of christians okay and if you no longer remain a christian then you pay a big price for that right because your community will shun you okay and you may not get your next job and your family is not going to like you you may not be able to get married easily or you may not be able to put your kids in a school that's run by the christians so there are a lot of these practical challenges but even more importantly at the psychological level uh, your world view is in many ways shaped by your religious upbringing okay especially if you are a christian uh, those are mostly dogmatic beliefs and that's how your world view is shaped now it's very hard for you to uh, renounce all of those beliefs and say now henceforth i'm not a christian so what you do is you try to downplay those beliefs okay you try to say you know what i'm this could be interpreted differently okay this is not what jesus said okay and you will do that uh, in a most expedient manner but uh, it's not necessarily an honest exercise but that's what you attempt and the third thing you do is you try to ignore all of those things okay whatever doesn't fit your belief system and whatever challenges you you try to ignore that and in fact there have been uh, studies conducted in neuroscience you know where, where they ran fmri st studies on voters right and let's say you are a, a staunch follower of a politician and there is this us presidential election and then you strongly follow this politician and uh, you are a big fan and you have committed yourself and then you run into contradictory statements made by this politician <clears throat> for a normal person the rational part of your brain will kick in <clears throat> and then you will examine why is this politician making contradictory statements but the fans and followers of the politician do not do that what they instead do is those parts of the brain which uh, you know process rational thought they remain inactive that's what the neuroscientists found okay so these uh, people have a mechanism by which they suppress any uh, uh, verse or any uh, statement or any thought process that challenges their belief they try to ignore the contradictions and they try to move on so this this is how most people deal with uh, cognitive dissonance and when they deal with uh, cognitive dissonance uh, they are also aided and abetted a lot by what you can call christian apologists okay christian apologists they write apologies okay most of them are dishonest writings but they are couched in a scholarly language okay and then they try to uh, use a very wishy-washy language and then they build a build a very elaborate scheme that gives an impression oh wait a minute uh, jesus the statement of jesus appears contradictory appears to have been falsified but look at this great scholar you know he has his phd in theology and you know he is a professor of religion at howard university or some other university and he has given an explanation so probably he should be correct okay so uh, so this is called confirmation bias okay so what you do you look for information that conforms uh, that confirms your bias okay uh, your bias is that jesus is uh, the son of god the bible is the word of god and hence everything it says should be correct and it cannot be contradictory and when somebody gives you 
and work of apology, a work of apologetics, then that aids in the process of confirmation bias. Okay, so that allows you to uh, remain snugly ensconced in your, uh, you know, childhood belief. Okay, then there is this third concept called selective attention. So selective attention is another concept studied in depth by neuroscientists. Okay. In fact, there is a very interesting video. You can just search on the uh, internet. It's also referenced in my uh, book, uh, where uh, there is a uh, there is a dormitory. There is a college dormitory where a group of kids are playing basketball, right? And then at the beginning, uh, the audience, those who are watching the video, are asked to count, uh, tell the number of times they pass the ball from one to the other with one bounce. Okay. And everybody counts, right? And at the end of it, everybody, you ask the audience in a uh, in a hall. Okay, how many times they pass? Everybody will say 12 times, 14 times, 11 times, 18 times. Okay, everybody will come up with a number, right? Then at the end of the day, they ask a question. How many of you noticed a gorilla in the basketball court? Okay, and everybody is now surprised. And now the gorilla is many times larger than uh, the basketball and even the human beings there, right? Even the players playing there. But nobody noticed it because that's because our uh, human brain is always... Uh, uh, you know, tuned to look for information that suits our bias. Okay, that's called selective attention. We always pay selective attention to what we want to confirm and what we want to observe. Okay, and hence these three concepts play a very important role. So now, back to how it impacts the Christians. That was your question. How all of these the concepts uh, impact the way Christians practice their religion. So, anyone who is reading the biblical verse where Jesus says, I'm going, my second coming is going to happen within a generation, that's within 30 years, would immediately know that Jesus was lying. Okay, they would immediately know that the words of Jesus were proven false. Now, what they do is, they, this will co create cognitive dissonance in them. And hence what they try to do is, they come up with, uh, they look for other excuses. Okay, they try to downplay this verse and they try to ignore this verse altogether and they look for other verses. And the other verse uh, in Bible says, nobody knows when the second coming of Jesus would happen. Okay, then they quote this verse, verse and they say, aha, look at this. Uh, even though, um, you know, uh, 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 you are all arguing about, you know, he will come back within a generation and all that stuff. That should have, uh, that should be a very, you know, metaphor-like statement. Okay, it's a figure of speech. And uh, uh, here this verse says, nobody knows when the Son of God will come back again. Okay, uh, and then uh, they completely, in doing that, they completely ignore the contradiction between the two. And like I pointed out earlier, uh, functional MRI studies connected with neuroscientists actually tell a part of the brain stops functioning when your religious beliefs are challenged and this is entirely applicable to the Christians. I see. That's a very insightful explanation. Yeah. The book speaks of evidence that indicates that Jesus may not even have existed. So could you shed some more light on that? Certainly. Uh, so to start with, right, in uh, in science, uh, we always look for evidence for an assertion. So in other words, if you said, uh, look, there was a nuclear explosion, okay, in my hometown, uh, then uh, the onus of proving it is upon your shoulders, okay. So in other words, you have to show the seismographic records, right, that tell, hey, wait a minute, there was an explosion, and look at the surge in the seismographs, okay, so and hence, uh, there was a nuclear explosion. And if you do not find any such evidence, the absence of evidence is the evidence of absence of phenomenon, right? In other words, if there is no seismographic uh, spike, it means there was no nuclear explosion in your hometown, right? So 
to start with there is no positive evidence that jesus existed there is absolutely none okay and the only reason hmm, the historicity of jesus was taken for granted all these years was because history was written by christians and christians believe jesus existed and hence they propagated and they reinforced that belief time and again and since a majority of people subscribe to this belief and still continue to subscribe to that belief and this belief survives in the world but apart from that there has never been any positive evidence for the existence of jesus that's number one then number two uh, there were a lot of historians and uh, scribes and chroniclers who documented about what went on in the roman world uh, the greco roman world as well as in palestine okay they described everything in detail and none of them uh, who would have been a contemporary of jesus who lived you know starting from around uh, you know 15 or 20 uh, ad all the way up to 80 or 90 ad none of them uh, talks about jesus now none of them is even aware of the existence of jesus even though if you read the bible jesus was a phenomenal person right he was doing miracles he was challenging the authority he was challenging uh the romans and you know he was doing all all kinds of things and he was challenging the jewish orthodoxy he does everything and uh, he attracts so much attention that uh, pontius pilate has to have him crucified okay he was such a big revolutionary right it's like you know uh, bhagat singh or madan lal dingra or uh, mahatma gandhi or any one of these people and uh, now if i were to give an analogy if someone were to look at the newspapers uh, of the 20th century right uh, from 1900s to 1947 1948 and uh, since all of these people were considered freedom fighters by the indians and they were considered as dangerous extremists or enemies of the empire by the british so when you look up the british newspapers as well as the indian newspapers you would find a lot of references to these uh, freedom fighters okay the only difference is indians would be uh, praising a bhagat singh or a madan lal dingra or a vanchinathan ayer okay whereas the british would be abusing them they will call them terrorists okay but there will be enough evidences when you go through the archives of the newspapers you'll find a lot of evidence now if jesus was really uh, such a dangerous uh, revolutionary that he had to be crucified okay and he was an enemy of both the jewish orthodoxy and uh, you know pontius pilate you know who was the governor Uh, uh, uh on behalf of the of caesar then you should find lot of references you find none okay and hence here the uh, absence of evidence is evidence of absence that's number one then number two uh, professor g a wells analyzes all the texts that were written at that time and he summarizes every reference and then he comes to a very comprehensive conclusion that uh, there is no historical uh, trace of the existence of jesus then there was a university of berkeley professor called alan dandis okay he looks into all the folklore and the way the gods and goddesses are portrayed not only in palestine but also in the greco roman world okay so he looks for i think like 24 or 25 such attributes that were used to characterize a divine person so these attributes include things like uh, a god is always born of a virgin a god uh, is resurrected three days after he dies and all of these things right a god is crucified or killed and all of these things so he finds jesus shares 22 of the 25 attributes with other 
divinities of the pagan world. Okay. In other words, if all the other divinities of the pagan world were mythical characters, there is no need to assume that Jesus was anything but a mythical character. Okay. But the most compelling evidence for all of these comes from uh, a contemporary scholar uh, called Richard Carrier. He's an American scholar and uh, he has written two exceptionally good books and I will make an exception and just cite the name of those two books. Right? One book is called Proving History, Bayes Theorem and the Quest for the Historical Jesus. The second book is On the Historicity of Jesus, Why We Might Have Reason for Doubt. These are the two books. And these two books, Richard Carrier comprehensively analyzes all the evidence available and then most importantly, he takes a very scientific approach. He takes the statistical method of Bayes' theorem to evaluate the evidence and then he comes up with the conclusion that Jesus probably did not exist. Okay? So the long story short, um, there is no evidence for the existence of Jesus and Jesus shares uh, the attributes of every other mythical character that existed in that point in time uh, in the Greco-Roman world as well as something the Palestinians are familiar with. And so in all conclude that Jesus did not exist and he was just a mythical character. I see. Uh, that does make a lot of sense. And uh, the next question I have to ask is about Kunrad Elst. So he cited in your book and uh, he makes a conclusion that Jesus, if at all he existed, may be suffering from some form of paraphrenia. And in uh, another section of your book, you also refer to Jesus as a psychotic messiah, possibly. So could you shed more light on these conclusions as well? Definitely. So the book you are talking about is uh, The Psychology of Prophetism, right, by, written by Coindradels. Coindradels wrote this book in 1990s. So uh, in this book, Coindradels uh, leverages the researches of Hermann Sommers. Hermann Sommers was uh, a Belgian scholar. Okay. So Hermann Sommers had a great advantage. He was a Christian priest and a theologian. And he was also a trained psychologist. So what he did was he had the unique advantage of looking at all the evidence in the Bible, okay, all the narratives attributed to Jesus, all the words of Jesus, and then he evaluated not only as a theologian, but also as a trained psychiatrist. And then he comes to a very interesting conclusion saying that Jesus was psychotic. Okay, So he suffered from mental illness. And he calls that mental illness paraphrenia. And uh, Coindradels, uh, you know, builds on this and then he comes up with a very comprehensive thesis. So what is this paraphrenia? This paraphrenia is characterized by grandiose delusions. Okay, so you have uh, delusions that, you know, you are son of God or some of, you know, very, uh, you, are, you are a person of very cosmic proportions, right? That's the kind of delusion you have. Then this is characterized and Jesus displays a lot of those uh, delusions and because he thinks of himself as son of God. And... Uh, there are a lot of uh, resentment. Okay, If a person suffers from paraphrenia, he carries a lot of resentment towards others. And even in the Bible, if you look at it, Jesus is very resentful of his own mother, okay, the Virgin Mary. Because there is one place you know, where uh, Jesus is allegedly very precautious. Right? He is like you know, 12 years old or something. And then he's sitting with uh, a lot of uh, uh, Jewish uh, Pharisees and others. Those are the Jewish Orthodox scholars. And he's debating with them. And then... Uh, uh, the Virgin Mary goes over and he says, what are you doing here? And Jesus says, don't you know that I'm here to do my father's bidding? Okay, meaning God's bidding, right? So so he, he's very resentful towards uh, the Virgin Mary and he also uses a very, uh, you know, condescending term to address her 
hey woman okay he doesn't call her affectionately as mother or anything and he is very resentful he calls her hey woman okay so he is very resentful and he is also highly secretive okay so kind of summarizes a lot of those cases and you know he tells others don't uh, tell the rest of the world what i am telling you now okay so these are all very typical attributes of someone suffering from paraphrenia and both herman somers and coinardist uh, do a comprehensive analysis and they come up with come to a conclusion uh, that uh, jesus suffered from paraphrenia which is a form of psychosis and which is also characterized by a very underlying uh, sexual tension okay so uh, if you are if you are sexually very abnormal right and then you suffer from some kind of a sexual deficiency then Uh, that's also one of the characteristics of a paraphrenic and throughout the bible uh, as well as in other christian texts and uh, even both the texts that are accepted by the orthodoxy and uh, those that were rejected by the orthodoxy all kinds of texts you find uh, an underlying uh, tension relating to sexuality in jesus okay so and jesus does not like sex okay he considers it filthy so uh, you know for example there is a book called uh, acts of thomas you know where uh, there is a wedding right there is a wedding happening and the groom enters the nuptial uh, you know the, the the bride's room right so the bridegroom enters the bride's room on the nuptial night and then he is surprised to find uh, right next to the bride on the nuptial bed jesus sitting there okay and then jesus is advising her okay jesus is telling look uh, sex is filthy okay if you avoid sex altogether okay and then if you don't have children and all these things then uh, you know you will uh, make it to heaven okay so and this is something you find throughout okay even you know the apostle paul uh, gives out similar messages he says you know it's better to avoid sex altogether but if it is completely inevitable then get married okay so you will find that even in india someone like gandhi uh, embraced these thoughts okay those are not hindu thoughts okay in hinduism you know dharma artha kama moksha all the four are very important kama is sacred sexuality and in fact in hinduism a married uh, couple should satisfy each other it's a man it's a mandatory thing okay and then we wrote a lot of kama shastras that were used to educate hindus if you go to any temple you will find lot of erotic sculptures that are meant to educate the people and also even in uh, bharatanatyam and uh, other dance forms and even in uh, classical music there will be lot of compositions that talk freely about sexuality okay there is no shame in uh, sex and uh, instead hinduism elevated sexuality to the level of sacred whereas in christianity it was considered filthy so in the utterings and narratives attributed to jesus you will find a lot of sexual tension okay so all of these things are signs of paraphrenia now uh, i think increasingly the research of coinardelst uh, and herman somers is being confirmed uh, recently from the harvard medical school a panel of uh, neuropsychiatrists uh, they com- uh, conducted a comprehensive uh, research into the words and deeds of jesus as narrated in the bible and this team was led by a scientist called uh, evan murray and then they published it was a peer reviewed research okay they co- compared everything with the diagnostics and statistical manual which is used for, uh, by all the neuropsychiatrists in the united states to examine the patients and they examined jesus and they came to the conclusion that he was most likely most likely psychotic okay which actually uh, confirms uh, the thesis of uh, coinardelst now those who are watching this uh, video 
may be a bit confused, right? Because only a few minutes ago I said Jesus probably did not exist. And then now I am also summarizing the thesis that says uh, Jesus was probably psychotic. Okay, uh, how is how is it possible? How can the two reconcile with one another? I discuss this in my book. Okay, so uh, to make it abundantly clear, uh, Coindra Dilst thinks that Jesus existed. Okay, uh, he said, look, all of these words and deeds attributed to this person uh, implies that there was a historical kernel to that. Okay, so probably a Jesus existed, and that Jesus suffered from paraphrenia. Okay, that is in a, in a just the thesis of Coindradilst, okay, and the Harvard neuropsychiatrists uh, started the assumption. Okay, they say, look, we are not going into the historic historicity of Jesus. What we are doing is, we are uh, examining the Jesus of the New Testament. Okay, assuming he existed, okay, as a historical person, and then we come to this conclusion that he was psychotic. But how can we uh, reconcile my argument that he probably did not exist and uh, the likelihood that he was psychotic. Uh, I discussed this in my book. So where I explain a uh, lot of religious sects which are doomsday cults, right? Which say, look, the world is going to end very soon. Okay, there is going to be the second coming of the Messiah. The Messiah is going to kill all of our enemies and then he'll put us on a heaven-bound cargo where we'll go there and we'll enjoy our life for eternity. I don't know why it is going to be enjoyment because there is no sex in heaven, right? And uh, most likely there are no females in heaven either because... Uh, according to the Bible, only 144,000 people would make it to heaven and all of them have to be virgin males. Okay, And that means there are no females, there is no sex, nothing of fun in the in heaven. And I don't know why you would want to go there, but that's a different story. right? But a lot of Christians want to go to that heaven. Uh, but uh, uh, those kind of doomsday cults, right, which prophesy the immediate end of the world, they attract a lot of people who are called functional schizotypes. Okay, uh, functional schizotypes are people have uh, mental issues. They have psychotic issues, but those are not very pronounced. So that does not prevent them from operating uh, in a way normally, if not perfectly normally, uh, reasonably normally in a society. Okay, so but these kind of cults attract such people. So I put forth the a possibility that early Christianity attracted a lot of these people. They came together and then they wrote prophecies. Okay, and then they uh, took this mythical character called Jesus. Okay, and then they embellished that character. They kept on attributing words and deeds to that character. But since all of these were written by those who are functional schizotypes, you find all signs of psychotic people. Okay, all signs of all signs of a psychotic Jesus. Okay, in the New Testament. Okay. So uh, all of this is explained at length in my book, and I bring up evidence of similar cults, right? Um, even in even in contemporary times, there are cults in Brazil and other places. And you know, you have all heard of all this, you know, heavens. Uh, uh, you know, what is called the one where they committed suicide because they wanted to go on a comet when Halley's Comet came. And all of these cults existed even today, uh, even in recent times. And so I discuss all of these at length in my book. But in a nutshell, uh, Christians are left with only two choices. Okay, choice A, they accept that Jesus did not exist. He's just a mythical character. And hence, there is no reason for them to be Christians. Or accept the possibility if he ex if he existed then he was a mental patient okay and i don't use it in a derogatory sense right i think mental illness is something which is uh, terrible and um, uh, a mental patient suffers a lot 
right? And then not only the patient, but also the family suffers. And most of society does not understand what it is to be a mental patient, right? What it is to be a schizophrenic or a paraphrenic or a psychotic person. And most of society makes fun of that person or is completely apathetic. So I think a person who suffers from mental illness deserves our sympathy. And in that sense, if Jesus existed and if he was a uh, suffering from mental illness, he deserves our sympathy, right? And I think today, if Jesus were to live in the United States of America, he will get free treatment under Obama care, okay, in a good psychiatric ward, okay? And I think that's something we should all support, okay? And I would entirely support that. But I find it extremely ridiculous when Christians don't recognize this. And if Christians said, look, you know, let's use Jesus as an example, and uh, uh, he suffered from a mental illness, and, you know, we are not going to claim he is son of God, but uh, let's use that example to take free Obamacare to psychiatric patients all across the US and even across the world. I would support that, right? I would welcome that. But if they say, look, every telltale sign of a psychotic person, person is here and then you call him the son of God, that's my problem. Makes total sense, absolutely. Uh, my next question is that are there any dire consequences promised for non-believers of Christianity who do not take Jesus as a savior? There are. Okay, uh, so Christianity is a, a pretty much the outcomes of binary. Okay, so uh, let's start the contrast, right? So uh, within Hinduism, you have uh, many, many schools, right? There are uh, darshana, uh, which are, uh, you know, Ishwara darshana, right? And then, you know, they accept the concept of Ishwara, okay? And there are bhakti traditions. And then there are schools of Vedanta, okay, where, uh, uh, you know, it accommodates bhakti, it also accommodates... Uh, uh, you know, knowledge, right, jnana, but then at one stage it says you have to transcend everything to attain moksha. Then you have Nirishwara Darshana within uh, Hinduism, right? So Nirishwara Darshana is not necessarily atheism, right? And I practice uh, Nirishwara Darshana, but lot of traditions like, you know, starting from Lokayata all the way up to Nyaya or even Vaisheshika or in a sense Nirishwara because the existence of Ishwara is not a requirement or central or a prerequisite to establishing those schools, those darshana, right? And hence they are called Nirishwara, right? So that's why Mahabharata even considers Sankhya to be a Nirishwara darshana, right? So now, uh, 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 in Hinduism, you have these uh, different schools. And then if you don't follow something, what happens? Nothing, okay? Uh, because it's not as if, look, you don't accept uh, Adi Shankara, or you don't accept Ramanuja, or you don't accept Kapila, you go to hell, nothing of that sort, right? So if you accept... Uh, fine, okay, there are no rewards. Actually, there are no rewards if you seriously think of it, right? Because once you attain knowledge, right, and once you overcome avidya, what do you get? You get nothing because you attain uh, moksha and then in paramartika, uh, uh, you know, which is the transcendent reality, there is nothing, okay? You don't exist anymore, right? And your ego does not exist and there is no duality, okay? And in, in every sense, in Hinduism, there are no material beliefs, okay? It's not like Islam where they say, look, you... Uh, blow yourself up and you go to the Islamic heaven, you get 72 virgins, okay? And uh, it's not like in Christianity where you are told, look, you go to heaven and you get to enjoy for the rest of your life, okay? Or for the rest of eternity. There's no such thing in Hinduism, okay? So, uh, pursuit of knowledge or pursuit of a philosophy is only to liberate yourself from ignorance, okay? That is the core of Hindu, Hindu approach. And if you don't, nothing will happen, okay? You will again... Uh, you know, uh, based on your karma, you, you may spend a short time in heaven or hell and you will again come back, you'll be reborn and you'll again marry, you'll have fun, again you will die. Okay, this cycle, uh, samsara will just continue. But in Christianity, the outcomes are very binary. Okay, if you accept Jesus, you will go to heaven. 
if you don't jesus will upon his second coming uh, slaughter every one of you okay every one of the non believers that involves includes all of our children okay people they may be perfectly reasonable children and you know they may be doing the nicest things one can think of okay but they would all be slaughtered by jesus they would not merely be slaughtered he would torture them this is what the bible tells us he would torture them for 5 months on earth okay that will be a brutal torture and then he will kill them then he will load them on the hell bound cargo post mortem okay where he will take them to hell and in hell he would torture them for eternity and they'll be burnt in fire and all kinds of things will happen right all of this sounds very childish but this is what the fundamental christian belief is and uh, the so called christian philosophers i use the word so called because i consider them all to be extremely substandard right and most of them uh, won't even get a d right in a hindu school of philosophy but someone like you know thomas aquinas okay he is hailed as a great philosopher and i uh, you know uh, mercilessly critique him in the book and then someone like thomas aquinas says one of the greatest advantages of being a christian is that when you die you will go to heaven and then you can sit in the balcony of heaven and from there you can derive great pleasure by watching all of these non believers getting tortured in hell okay and if this is not sadism i do not know what is okay but so what christianity promises believers is a sadistic pleasure and what it promises non believers is eternal torture so this is uh, what is in store for non believers like us all of us hindus and uh, uh, buddhists and uh, atheists and everyone now you may ask uh, why do we even take this seriously because earlier i said the entire bible the entire bible reads like chandamama comic right so why do we have to even take this seriously uh, that's very true right all of this is a nonsensical belief okay we can just ignore that but for a very important lesson history teaches us so the bible told very similar things about the jewish people okay so it said they are all children of devil okay and it said every generation of jews are cursed okay because they killed jesus okay it told all these stories now christians internalized all of these stories and then uh, they uh, subjugated and they ill treated the jews for nearly 2000 years and uh, those who were brought up in the christian uh, tradition like adolf hitler okay and the nazis okay uh, hitler not only quotes jesus he finds jesus to be a great inspiration and then he repeatedly works closely with the vatican and the christian churches and then he subsidizes the bible he subsidizes the writings of martin luther the protestant reformer and then he distributes all over the place and then his propagandists like julius striker they take biblical themes and then they com- com- compose them in songs and rhymes for nursery school children they teach all these things and we know what came out of it 6 million jews were exterminated on earth and then this is not the only uh, crime of christianity so what it did to the gypsies so the gypsies are it's a it's a very denigrating term by the way right so the correct term to use is roma right so the roma people are hindus they came from india okay so they left they came from what we call the punjab and haryana region of india today and then they migrated they were taken as uh, you know Uh, slaves by the muslims uh, when the when when the muslims came and conquered india and they sold them into slavery in armenia iraq and other places and eventually they made it to the europe both the christians and the muslims they indulged in slave trade of the roma people or the gypsy people and uh, the christians compiled uh, really slanderous 
uh, rhymes and Christmas carols about the gypsies, right? They wrote songs like the gypsies. The gypsies were ironsmiths, right? The blacksmiths, right? They used to work on iron. And then they told stories like uh, the gypsies made the iron that was used to crucify Jesus, and hence they have to do penance. And uh, as a result of that, the gypsies or the Roma people were repeatedly persecuted, and more than half a million of them were exterminated by the Christian Nazis when Hitler sent them all to the gas chambers. So this is the problem, right? And uh, now I always give this analogy. Let's say you have a neighbor, right? And then uh, every day the school bus comes to pick up your daughter, right? And your daughter is a five-year-old kid. She goes to first grade or kindergarten or whatever it is. And then your neighbor comes out and, in, and then he says, hey man, I wish your daughter breaks her leg today. And then she comes back home in crutches. Okay, let's say he says this every day when your daughter is boarding the school bus. What would you do? You are not going to keep quiet, right? You will go and, uh, you know, uh, challenge him. You will go and engage him. You will ask him, why are you saying this to my daughter? This is, a, this is the meanest thing to say, okay? Why are you wishing ill for my child, okay? Is something mentally wrong with you, okay? Or are you just a mean person? Would you change your ways? And if he says, no, I will not change my ways, then you will go and tell your daughter, look, we have this neighbor who is a sick fellow. Okay, he wishes ill for you. Okay, now stay away from him. Okay, he is not your friend. He will never be your friend. Stay away from him. That's exactly the same we should do to the Christians, right? If Christians believe all this nonsense written in the Bible and then we face two risks, right? One is there is a possibility that uh, non-Christians may suffer the plight of the Jews and Gypsies or the Roma people. And the second one is we are also, they are also indulging in hypocrisy, right? Uh, uh, to your face, they are saying, hey, you know what? You are my friend, okay? And you and I can coexist. But behind your back, they are wishing that your daughter and your son will burn in hell for eternity, whereas they will watch from the balcony of heaven the suffering of your child for eternity. So how is this acceptable? No civilized person, no civilized society should accept that. And that's why uh, this is what is in store for non-believers. Okay, if anything that Christianity says is true, but even if what it says is completely untrue, which I think it is, whatever Jesus and the Bible and the Christian's prophecy for us and our children is obscene and indecent and hence we should not tolerate it. Uh, that is indeed very insightful. And uh, so this actually addresses one of the questions I had about how one should engage a Christian in dialogue and debate. So this covers that. So thank you for that as well. And now the elephant in the room, really. So despite these philosophical, metaphysical, psychological, and ethical inconsistencies with the Dharmic traditions, why are so many Hindus in favor of Christianity and show Jesus the respect that they do? So if I were to answer that in a single line, my answer would be, it's the ignorance of the colonized mind. Okay. So if you go back to uh, history, uh, Christianity came to India sometime in the 6th century. Okay, it was brought by the traders to Kerala. So, what you find, Hindus accommodated them. Hindus said, "All right, you know, uh, you are just like any other religion. Uh, come and live here, no problem." Right. So, and the Christians flourish. So, they are called the uh, Syrian Christians or the Indian Orthodox Church of Kerala. Okay. So, Hindus never bothered with them, right? In fact, they let them flourish. Okay. But Hindus showed no interest in Jesus. Okay, because Jesus offered nothing that you know Hindu gurus, uh, you know Hindu rishis and uh, Hindu philosophical texts offered in abundance. Okay, There was nothing Jesus could offer that we did not have. And uh, in fact, if they had bothered to read the Bible, they would have found a lot of it to be, uh, you know, uh, to be really sickening. 
but throughout you had a lot of debates across the darshana but mostly hindus simply ignored christianity because it offered nothing of interest to us and all of this changed only in the 19th century when the british were ruling us and some of our elite uh, hindu children were taken to convent schools and educated there lot of the strength starts with raja ramon roy and others right and they got completely brainwashed by the christians in the christian schools and then they uh, internalized uh, um, you know almost a full some respect and praise for jesus okay and they would go about praising jesus everywhere and then they saw uh, jesus as the fulfillment of hinduism okay and so they they wouldn't let go of everything right because they also liked aspects of vedanta and other things in hinduism but they cannot let go of that and then they had now acquired a love for jesus and so they concluded that jesus is the icing on the cake okay vedanta is the cake and jesus is the icing Okay. and then we had a lot of hindu gurus right and uh, while i i don't mean this in a disrespectful sense right so lot of hindu gurus like you know ramakrishna paramahamsa and uh, swami vivekananda uh, sivananda prabhupada and others uh, they have all done some phenomenal work okay i am not going to discount any of that okay so they have uh, taken uh, hinduism across the world and then they have uh, countered other religions you know christianity islam etc in many places i admire all of those things but i think uh, in the spirit of inquiry we should also criticize where it is due okay so a lot of these people were also brainwashed okay so many of them had attended christian schools and other things in their childhood and then they had uh, not really read the bible and then they had not really understood what christianity was and then since in the schools you know the christian missionaries taught them a very sanitized version of jesus and they gandhi all of these people they did that right so they were all taught a sanitized version of jesus and then they internalized it and then they would go about praising jesus in their sermons uh, in their uh, you know uh, lectures etc and uh, as a result their followers started uh, praising jesus too so today that's why you find among the uh, westernized uh secularized hindus okay they all have um, a complete respect for jesus and the moment you criticize jesus okay you can offer all the facts in defense of your criticism okay they won't look at the fact and uh, you all already know the reason right cognitive dissonance and uh, why they behave that way okay instead they will immediately say oh you must be a hindu fanatic that's why you are criticizing jesus and i have no problem accepting jesus on on the one hand and then uh, you know accepting hinduism on the other but the problem is the two cannot coexist okay because christianity says if you are not a christian if you do not accept jesus as your exclusive savior then you will go to hell okay and it doesn't accommodate look you can uh, go and worship krishna in the morning and jesus in the afternoon i am not saying you should do that but all i am pointing out is you know uh, christianity doesn't have this kind of accommodation and it's only our own hindu swamis and you know some of the hindu thinkers uh, who have been doing this kind of stuff however i must point out this was not the way it was initially right i pointed out until the early 1800s uh, hindus were very critical i mean hindus totally ignored christianity they were not praising jesus and towards the end of the 1800s we had some towering hindu spiritual leaders right or religious leaders like chattampi swami and uh, arumuganavalar so they wrote scathing criticism of christianity chattampi swami wrote a book called christu matachedanam okay uh, meaning uh, dissection of uh, the christian religion right uh, and then if you read it today it will look like you know uh, there is an english translation available it's available online okay and then it will look like it was written 
uh, in 2015. It's that modern. Okay, and then he uses all the modern techniques or everything that he had at his disposal to attack, ridicule, and uh, reduce Jesus to dust. Okay, so that's the way it was. And then uh, you had Aurumuga Pillai noveler. He wrote a book called Shaiva Dushana Parigaram. Okay, so uh, the remedy for an abuse of the Shaiva religion. So the, he was a Shaiva uh, scholar. Okay, and he was a Shaiva religious leader. And the Christian missionaries used to abuse uh, Shaivism in particular. And hence, he wrote this critique, um, launching a blistering attack on the Bible and Christianity. Now, what happened was that trend could have continued. Okay, a lot of our Hindus could have picked up from where Chattampi Swami and Aurumuga Navalar left, and then they could have offered uh, uh, an even more nuanced critique, updated that with modern knowledge from philology, uh, linguistics, science, etc., and uh, decimated Christianity. Unfortunately, thanks to uh, you know, uh, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, Vivekananda, and many other Hindu Swamis, and Gandhi and others, they ignorantly and almost mindlessly went about praising Jesus, left, right, and center. And since these people, uh, today, very few in Indians or Hindus would know of Chattambi Swami or Aurumuga Navala, right? except those who are uh, uh, you know, pursuing scholarly works, others won't even know of them, but everybody would know of Vivekananda or Gandhi or Sivananda, and hence, everybody says, look, uh, if Jesus was good enough for uh, Gandhi, uh, Sivananda, and uh, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa and Vivekananda, then he is good enough for me. But that to me is an extremely lazy answer. Okay, it's also a logical fallacy. It's an argument from authority, right? You simply say I accept something because someone powerful, someone famous uh, said that, and that's a very lazy, that's a very un-Hindu way of thinking. The correct Hindu way of thinking is to look for evidence, right? That's why when you go back to old texts like you know Gautama Nyaya Sutra, uh, it even for Shabda Pramana it says it should be treated like an expert opinion, which should be verified against evidence. Okay, that was. Uh, the traditional Hindu approach. Unfortunately, lot of mo modern Hindus and they take the intellectually lazy approach to praising Jesus because it's a path of least resistance. Very well said. And uh, I have one final question. Uh, we often see the argument, especially from the secular Hindu front, that if Christianity is so bad, then why are there good Christians? So how do you address that? All right. Uh, the question is, if there are, if Christianity is so bad, then why do we have good Christians, right? Or the corollary is, if there are good Christians, then Christianity should be good. Okay, that's the corollary of this argument, right? So we can simply uh, refute this argument with a counterpoint, right? If uh, Nazism and Hitler are so bad, why do we have good Germans? Right? Because every one of us will agree that even when uh, uh, you know Hitler lived, there were many, many good Germans, right? And uh, definitely we can all say that all the German children were good people, okay? Because they had not been conditioned by the Nazi ideology. And does the presence of good Germans make Nazism a good ideology? It does not, okay? So in logic and in mathematics, we call it fundamental attribution error, okay? So what it does, it attributes uh, the goodness or the lack thereof of a particular ideology to some factor which is completely unrelated, right? Uh, now, uh, the presence of people, the presence of good people in a society does not mean that every ideology in that society is good, okay? Why is that? Because no ideology can corrupt everyone 100%, okay? It can corrupt you 
20%, it can corrupt you 30% or it can corrupt 10% of the population and not the remaining 90%. Okay, This is the nature of any ideology. This is how information flows, right? Uh, and hence in any society, even which has the worst possible ideology like uh, Stalinism or uh, Nazism or Christianity or Islam or anything, you will still find enough good people. And in fact, if you were to selectively cherry pick uh, evidence you can even write a complete book right that will portray the society as made up entirely of good people okay and in fact you can do this even with Mein Kampf right uh, the book that Hitler wrote and you can cherry pick uh, sentences and you can create a book that will look like uh, you know that will make Hitler look like a great person a very humble person a connoisseur of art and architecture and uh, not at all an anti-semitic monster he was right so but the problem is um, we do not need 100% of the people to be 100% influenced by an ideology for that ideology to harm society. Okay? Take Islam today. Nobody will say 100% of Muslims are terrorists. They are not. Okay? Nobody will say 100% of Muslims are jihadis. They are not. Right? But the presence of a few jihadis and the presence of a few Muslims who are ready to die and become fidayin or suicide bombers is enough to pose a significant threat to any society. Okay. Likewise, the presence of a small course who embrace the Nazi ideology and who are ready to go to full extent, right, to persecute the Jewish people and send them to the gas chambers was good enough to kill six million Jewish people. Likewise, the presence of a small core of Christians who are fanatics and who believed the Bible and the words of Jesus was good enough to persecute Jews and eventually to kill 6 million of them. That was good enough to persecute uh, the Roma people or the Gypsies and to kill nearly half a million of them uh, when Hitler came to power. And that was enough for them to persecute and kill a lot of Indians. They killed a lot of both men, women and children uh, in 1857, right? When the Hindus put up a, uh, uh, launched a struggle for independence. Uh, so this was good enough for them. So that is why the correct answer to give is, look, no ideology can corrupt anyone 100%. So even in the in a society which is governed by the worst possible ideology, you will find good people. But the presence of good people does not validate the goodness of an ideology. So we should be able to evaluate the two independently because a bad ideology, even with a small dedicated core, can do significant harm to society. Very true. And uh, most people ignore the thousand years of conquistadors and inquisition of Christianity. So they usually see the peaceful side of, uh, you know, pray to Jesus, go to heaven, uh, help right. thy neighbor and so on. But they actually miss out on the entire historical aspect of how violent Christianity has been. So I, I guess one of the ways exactly. to summarize your uh, argument would just be to say that there are good Christians in spite of Christianity. Precisely. That's the right answer. Because... Because human beings are complex systems, right? We are all complex systems. For example, uh, all of us do not like one form of beauty, right? Uh, you know, uh, a woman I find beautiful, you may not. Or a woman or a man, one of our discussions here, finds handsome, another woman may not, right? Because we are complex beings. And as complex beings, as complex systems, uh, we are also influenced by an idea to varying degrees, right? Some of us are... Uh, blind followers, some of us are not, some of us uh, are influenced to 10%, 30%, 40%. So as you correctly said, some Christians are good in spite of Christianity and not because of it. 
So on that note, I would uh, like to conclude my questions and I thank uh, Kaloye Venkatji for uh, this very insightful interview and of course for writing a spectacular book. So if you could just give a final note on where people can make this purchase because uh, as, as a person living in the US, I could buy it on Amazon.com or Lulu.com. But what about people who live in India? So it's also available on Amazon uh, India, okay, on the website. And also there is another uh, publisher in India called Poti, okay, uh, P-O-T-H-I, I think. Uh, and they also bring it out. And that's a, a, a lower cost edition. So you have that available in India as well. And uh, Raji Verma from the Global Hindu Institute who organized uh, the writing of this book and who commissioned this, he is also trying to bring out a more easily accessible a mass version available in India. Wonderful. So we look forward to that. And on that note, uh, I'll just close up with a Shanti Mantra and then open it up for the audience. Om Poonamadaf Poonamidam Poonat Poonamudachyate Poonasya Poonamadaya Poonameva Om Shanti 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 Harihi Om Shri Guru Namaha Harihi Om. So if anyone has uh, any questions for Kalavaji, please go ahead and we can have that session. Uh, yeah, I have a question. Hello? Yeah, yeah please go please ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Um, first of all, thank you so much for the session. It was really very, very insightful. And I think a lot, I learned a lot. In fact, I, a lot of answers or uh, questions also got answered. Um, well, uh, I just had a question in mind as to what does Christianity uh, say about sins other than those uh, by virtue of birth? I mean, you said that uh, Christianity would define us as sinners by virtue of the way we are born. But how about the other deeds? How about, um, how about uh, the negative things? Or maybe if a person is indulging in negative themes, so things, what is it that is prophesied for people who are indulging in things other than these sins? That's a great question, right? I'll quickly summarize your question for the benefit of everyone. Uh, so, uh, so your question was, Christianity designates you as a sinner, designates everyone as a sinner because uh, you know you, you are all born, you are allegedly born in original sin, right, as a result of having, you know, product of sex. So, but what does Christianity say about those who commit uh, sinful or noble deeds or virtuous deeds, right? And in other words, the question is, uh, does your conduct have any impact at all on whether you would go to heaven or hell? Is that a good summary? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's a great question, right? So, uh, in fact, your conduct absolutely means nothing in Christianity. So the reason for that is uh, Christianity has an idea called predestination. Okay. According to predestination, you are predestined to go to heaven or hell. Okay. So this is a very interesting idea. Okay. So, in other words, what it says is. Uh, uh, in fact, this is one of the fatal flaws of Christianity. Okay, so you don't need anything outside of Christianity to discredit that religion. Okay, their uh, uh, theological premise itself invalidates that religion. So Christianity says uh, God has predestined uh, you to either go to heaven or hell. Okay, so in other words, um, everything you do, whether you are born in original sin or whether you have done something good a virtuous deed or whether you have done a sinful crime makes no difference okay because uh, god will uh, god has you know predestined you to go to uh, heaven or to hell now can god change his mind 
right? So I address all these questions in the book. Now, what happens? God changes mind, changes his mind. Then that makes the God uh, less omnipotent and less omniscient. Okay, because which means before you were born, God thought that you would go to heaven. Okay, and uh, hence, but after you were born and because you did something, God changed his mind. Now let us send her to hell. Uh, that means. Uh, the original, original, uh, uh, originally, what God uh, had in mind for you is has been proven false, right? So that means God is not omniscient. So Christianity grappled with this problem initially, very interestingly, right? They came up with an idea called free will. Okay, so by your own free will, you can accept Jesus. Okay, and hence you will go. But the problem is your free will and predestination both cannot be true. Only one of them can be true because if you are predestined by God to go to hell. But out of your own free will, you have accepted uh, Jesus as your savior and you go to heaven. That means whatever God predestined for you has been proven false. right? So the two cannot be uh, true. And hence, uh, in other words, if you are predestined to go to heaven or hell, why do you even have to believe in Jesus? You don't have to believe in Jesus because anyway you are going to heaven or hell one way or the other. Now, uh, stepping outside of this, uh, do your deeds matter? In Christianity, they do not. Okay, You could be the worst sinner. But if you accept Jesus as your savior, or if you are predestined to go to heaven, then you will go to heaven. Okay. On the other hand, if you have not accepted Jesus and you have done the most noble deeds, right? And let's say you uh, uh, trained as an oncologist and then you dedicated your life to saving children dying of cancer, right? And then you never kept any money for yourself and then you trained another hundred doctors in your life. All of them, they dedicated their lives. You created a movement and that was so beneficial to children and you do, did the most noble things makes no difference okay despite doing all of these things you would still go to hell if you did not accept Jesus as your savior in other words Christianity is not a religion that rewards virtuous behavior it's a religion that rewards dogmatic submission to Jesus in many senses that is very similar to how the terrorists like you know uh, Isis or Osama bin Laden operate today if you think of it, they tell a woman, if you wear the burqa or the wheel head to toe, and then if you obey the orders of the terrorist organization and go and kill, shoot and blow up, then, you know, you will go to heaven. That's what they tell you. If you don't, if a woman decides, if she dares, look, I'm not going to do any of this nonsense. You know, I'm going to study accounting, I'm going to a business school and I'm going to start a company, then she'll be beheaded or stoned to death, right? By these jihadis and by these terrorist organizations. In every sense, uh, Christianity and Jesus behaved exactly the same way. They said, you dogmatically submit to my unreasonable demand, you will go to heaven. Or if I predestined you to go to heaven, you will go to heaven. But your virtuous conduct makes no difference. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, any other questions? Okay, so then uh, if nobody can think of any other questions, I guess we can wrap it up. Oh, sorry. I have a oh, question. Sorry. Yeah. Um, my question is how, if, if this is the view that's seen or, you know, explained, then how can um, others not see the same in, in Vedanta or in, with Hinduism, in regard to Hinduism? 
So if I may... You're not making very clear. No, no. Let, let me try to play back that question. Uh, is your question, uh, do we not see the same things in Vedanta? Uh, whatever you see in Christianity, do we not see the same things in Vedanta? Is that your question? Or maybe others see the same thing in Vedanta or within Hinduism. Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. So your question is, just like I see Christianity and Jesus to be less than flattering and less than uh, less than edifying and as actually uh, to be very frank, very harmful and uh, injurious to society, can also somebody see Vedanta as harmful? Is that your question? Yeah. Or see other religions the same way. If everything yeah. is like Nama Rupa or yeah. Rupa Nama or Mithya, then maybe part of it is all reflections in different ways of the one reality. Alright, so so that's a very interesting question, right? First, to begin with, I'm not a follower of Vedanta, okay, so I'm not going to uh, defend Vedanta here, but regardless, uh, I'm familiar with Vedanta, right? I have studied that I'm familiar with it. So now, there are very fundamental differences. So, and uh, Vedanta, once again, even Advaita Vedanta, does not say, uh, you know, uh, uh, it, 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 uh, what it does is it divides the world into uh, the levels of uh, Paramartika and Vyavaharika, right? And in Vyavaharika, it still expects you to follow. Uh, the Vyavaharika is what you know defines the realm of material world in which we all live. It still expects you to fulfill all of your duties uh, to society, to family. You have to go through, uh, you know, pursue all the purushartha. Uh, you have to practice dharma and you have to earn wealth. You have to study. You have to get married. And in fact, that's why you even have that, you know, that uh, debate between Mishra and uh, um, uh, uh, Shankara. That is the question that, you know, you have not experienced karma, right? And Shankara is made to go and then experience it and then he comes back. He experienced sex for some time and he comes back to debate. So all of these are very integral parts of uh, even Advaita Vedanta system, right? And now the area where one may disagree is, uh, uh, is there a moksha or not? And one may disagree, right? But none of that is uh, can be equated with what you see in Christianity. So Christianity, uh, so, so when you take Hindu systems like Vedanta on the one hand, what they say is they say, here is, your material world, right? And here is how we should live. And that is subject to reason. Okay, you can, uh, that's the reason we wrote numerous Dharma Shastra, right? There is not a single Dharma Shastra text, but we have uh, dozens of those that were written over a period of time or millennia. And all of those are repeatedly examined, questioned and critiqued, and then we follow. So in other words, Hinduism allows you to shape your life according to a reasonable inquiry. That's why we have the system of Pramana and based on that we come up to a conclusion. This is not the case in Christianity. In Christianity you cannot ask questions. Okay, And in Christianity you have to dogmatically obey whatever is said in the Bible and even if it is completely self-contradictory there is nothing you can do. You cannot challenge it because it's the word of God. Then second difference is uh, when you look at any of the Hindu traditions what happens if you do not follow Jnana? Right? If you do not follow uh, you know, the teachings of Adi Shankara. You will not go to hell. Nothing will happen to you. Okay. Uh, in fact, you may not uh, uh, attain uh, mukti, right? And uh, you may not go to, you know, that nirvikalpa samadhi status and all of that stuff. So, so in Hinduism, you don't pay a price for not falling in line with an ideological system. In Christianity, you pay a price. If you do not accept Jesus as you burn in hell for eternity. So these two are very fundamental differences. So while in principle, the 
methodology I have used is not only applicable to Christianity, it can be applied to any religion. The inference you will get would be radically, op uh, would be diametrically opposite uh, when you examine Christianity with my methodology versus when you examine a Hindu system of thought with my methodology. Did I answer your question? Yes. I guess, um, uh, can you explain it in context to uh, any other religion then with like either Buddhism or um, uh, Judaism? So can I also make a brief uh, interjection and add to what uh, Kalaviji just mentioned about the difference between like Vedanta and uh, Christianity? So as, as you know very very rightly suggested that in our tradition there is no dogmatic acceptance of faith and even Adi Shankaracharya writes in his commentaries that even if a hundred Vedas declare that fire is cold, reject the Vedas because you have to go with the pramana which is your sense organs at this point. Similarly even Vidyaranya says that if you hear something good from a parrot which is also called Shuka, similarly just as the name of the Acharya, then you should accept that and if the Acharya says something wrong you should reject the Acharya. The other thing is that unlike Christianity, there are internal consistencies within all Hindu Darshana. So internally each of them are consistent even if they may disagree with one another. And this is on grounds of logic, metaphysics, ontology and epistemology. Each of these are developed systems within the Sanatana Dharmic traditions. Whereas uh, if you look at Christianity itself, there are many you know, glaring fallacies, logically or otherwise. So if one has to you know, pick Christianity apart, one need not look even outside of Christianity in order to do so. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the other question is, can we, uh, is the other question if I were to play back, uh, is it that can I use my methodology to examine other religions like you know Buddhism or uh, Islam or anything or Judaism? Is that your question? Yes. Okay. Uh, the answer is yes. Okay. Uh, you can examine uh, not only a religious ideology or a doctrinal system. You can even examine a political ideology using my methodology. Okay. Uh, because this is a methodology which is based on pramana okay which is a very traditional hindu approach to uh, evaluating uh, knowledge systems and uh, determining the nature of reality that's what i have done here uh, and in my book uh, the primary focus is on christianity however uh, i do examine and uh, uh, reject a lot of uh, premises uh, which are Judaic in nature because Christianity borrows many of those from Judaism and I examine and I reject those as well even though I do not focus on that part I focus more on the Christian part of uh, the, the ideological system now the same can be very well applied to uh, uh, Islam also or you can apply the same to Buddhism however the outcomes would be very different so if you take uh, for example uh, Islam or uh, Christianity or Judaism these are what, what I would call systems of in-group morality coupled with out-group hostility. Okay? This is a concept comes, which comes from evolutionary biology and sociobiology. So uh, this is observed in a lot of uh, organisms, not just human beings, even in birds and other animals and uh, some of the mammals too, where what they do, they will form a group. Right, A group of birds will flock together and then they will... Uh, protect each other right and they will uh, cut a lot of slack they'll be very lenient towards each other but they'll be extremely hostile towards another flock which is considered an outsider this is true of troops of you know uh, primates this is true of, true of schools of mammals etc every one of them they do that so 
uh, and a deed uh, because they are hostile towards the out group and then whatever they do which weakens the out group and which uh, strengthens the in group is welcome and all the Abrahamic religions by which I mean Christianity, Judaism and Islam all of them are systems of in group morality coupled with out group hostility so take Bible as an example uh, the Bible as an example where Jesus often would say uh, you know he will say uh, forgive your neighbor right and that means forgive those who are um, uh, your fellow believers because he also says don't throw any of these pearls at swine okay so the non-believers are called swine and in other places he calls uh, non-believers dogs right those who are non-believers uh, those who are not part of his race he calls them dogs you find the similar teachings in Islam too in Islam what you find is uh, the Quran and the Hadith they teach that uh, when you go to war uh, you can butcher the men who are non-Muslims right those who are non-believers and you can take their women as sex slaves and then you can ransom them, you can barter them, you can trade them. And Muhammad himself did that. Okay, he would uh, ransom a woman for 400 dirham. Okay, uh, after killing her husband, her father, everyone in uh, cold blood, he would be ransoming them. So, whereas you can apply the same uh, methodologies to Buddhism, but you will come up with a diametrically opposite conclusion. In the case of Abrahamic religions, you will conclude that these are either psychotic systems or extremely harmful systems or both in the case of Buddhism you may uh, agree or disagree with some of those like with some of the pramana you may disagree for example if I were to examine Buddhism uh, through the prism of uh, uh, Lokayata uh, uh, through the prism of the Lokayata school then I would say uh, why at all do I have to uh, accept something like Nirvana right I don't see any evidence for Nirvana so I'll reject it but I can agree with a lot of other things uh, in the writings of Nagarjuna, Ashwagosha and many others which are perfectly compatible with reason. Right? And the same with something like Vedanta with any other school. So, applying my methodology uh, to uh, Hindu, Bauddha, Jaina, Darshana you may agree with a lot of things uh, because they are compatible with reason and they stand the scrutiny of reason whereas when you apply the same things to uh, Abrahamic religions like Christianity, Islam and uh, uh, Judaism, those religions fail the scrutiny of reason. Thank you. You're welcome. Any other questions? Okay, then I suppose... Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry, I'm being the only dialogue person here. How did you come upon this journey? Like, what, what led you to this? Sure. Uh, I, I was kind of explaining that before you joined, I think. Uh, but a quick recap. Uh, I have been writing on uh, subjects related to Dharma for more than uh, 15, 16 years now. Okay. Uh, I have written a lot of blogs. I have contributed to anthologies, both in print and in uh, electronic format. I have been doing that for more than 15 years and I have also written about uh, Christianity for well over 10 years though I have been referencing a lot of that even before that. So, uh, but the main motive for me to do that was uh, I am a follower, I am a student of uh, the Sitaram Goyal and the Coindrod Yel's school of thinking, right? Which emphasizes a lot on reason, knowledge and truth and uh, not in uh, 
uh, you know, advocating something because it is populist. So I'm a big follower of that school, and hence I thought it's uh, overdue a book which leverages uh, all the cutting edge findings of neuroscience, uh, psychology, linguistics, uh, philology, and uh, reason itself, right? Uh, and to examine Christianity is long overdue because the last books on the subject were written by uh, uh, by from the Hindu side were written from Goyal in the 80s and uh, Coin Dollars in the 90s and hence uh, a book was long overdue and hence I got to write this. Thank you. Most welcome. Uh, anybody else? Yeah, Tanji, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. My question is, if uh, if Jesus was probably uh, psychotic, how far so much knowledge is there in Bible? And suppose, uh, and there is a sentence Jesus say. I am a son of God. The same sentence was interpreted by another writer. They say Jesus is has expressed the sentence because he was in union with the God, in union with the oneself. Can you clarify this? Sure. Uh, so let me play back your question. Your question is, I think, twofold. Uh, the first question is. So if Jesus was psychotic, are there any uh, good or valuable teachings in Christianity? That's your first question. And second question is, how do we interpret the statement of Jesus that I am one with God? And uh, um, uh, so, uh, so that's, that's your second question. Am I correct? All right. Uh, I assume I take the silence for yes, and then starting with the first one, are there any good teachings or any valuable teachings in Christianity? Okay. So there was uh, there was this great American uh, thinker uh, Thomas Jefferson. Okay. He started exploring this question right in the beginning. He found so much of horrible things in the Bible. Okay. He goes through the Bible end to end, and then he finds so many horrible things, and then he sets out on a mission to only summarize those teachings in the Bible which are good and everything else he leaves out. And as a result, he comes up with a, a Bible. It's called the Jefferson Bible. And that's only 19 or 20 pages long. Okay, And everything else is uh, hateful, uh, uh, rubbish, and uh, totally nonsensical. Right? He leaves out everything else. So the, uh, the Bible, which is a big voluminous text of, for the Christians, has shrunk to 19 or 20 pages for Thomas Jefferson. So when I set out to write the book, uh, I started with the mission. Can I make? Uh, can I uh, examine this Bible, uh, Thomas Jefferson's Bible, and uh, prove that there is not a single page which is worthy? Right. In other words, to uh, confirm Ambrose Bierce's word uh, that the uh, only problem with the Holy Bible is that it has far too many pages between the two covers. Okay. In other words, Beers thought that there is nothing worthy in the book. Right? And I wanted to evaluate these two opposite points. Right? One of Thomas Jefferson, who thought probably there are 90-20 pages uh, of worthy stuff in the Bible, and Ambrose Beers, who thought there was none. So I take all the teachings, you know, which are uh, considered by most people, uh, Christians as well as not as well as non-Christians uh, to be great people of those one by one in depth and then I prove and then I decisively argue that none of those teachings is 
a good teaching and none of those teachings is valuable and none of those teachings has any relevance to world today okay and it had no relevance to the world even then okay and in other words i conclude that there is not a single good teaching in the bible okay i explain all of these things at length in a complete section of the book so i do this examination and i also just to add one more thought to that uh, these kind of even seemingly good verses were not in the original version of the bible the bible was written over several centuries and uh, uh, a lot of people felt uncomfortable with the kind of statements where jesus uh, supports cruel uh, biblical laws and hence they came up with these kind of stories and then they attributed them to jesus but even those stories even when you factor in all the uh, interpolations everything still they do not redeem jesus and the conclusion is there is not a single valuable teaching teaching in all of christianity now to your second question uh, how do we interpret jesus statement that he and god are one right so uh, if i am guessing correctly uh, we are uh, some or the other relating that with um, uh, the various vedanta thoughts where you know hindus believe that you know the uh, paramatman resides within you and hence you are an aspect of the Uh, paramatman or ishvara and every every one of these things uh, unfortunately that is not the case okay so uh, the big problem is we should never take a statement made within an ideological system and then view it through the lens of our own ideological systems in other words if there is a statement within the bible uh, then you should interpret it based on uh, those Uh, based on the bible based on the society that wrote it and based on the ideological framework that was uh, that that governs the christian view of their own religion and we should not be using the hindu viewpoint and then use and then project it on christianity and say oh by the way jesus should be talking about uh, the brahman here and uh, that would be a very erroneous way of approaching it and uh, jesus was not doing any of those things because the best proof of that is then if jesus had ever meant that then he would have said look whether you believe in me or not it's the same paramatman that resides in, inside you okay so hence you are all capable of attaining the moksha you are all capable of self realizing he did not say that he said it's either my way or the highway if you accept me as your savior i will take you to heaven if you do not i will torture you for five months i will kill you then i will take you to hell and i will torture you there for eternity so that clearly proves jesus never thought that you are also an aspect of the divine he never thought that the same paramatman resides within you so that's why it's very important to only use reason and their own ways of understanding religions to uh, interpret a competing ideology and not to color it with our own vedantic or any other perception did i answer your question Yes thank you very much most welcome uh, one last question uh, in your research uh, which religion did you find more harmful to hinduism is it christianity or islam so christianity and islam are uh, very similar religions okay there is not much different between the two okay both uh, come out of uh, judaism and both have a very similar world view they divide the world into the world of believers and the world of uh, non believers and both aim to strengthen the believers at the expense of the non believers 
to take one example uh, in uh, islam there is a word called called haram right haram means something which is forbidden okay so uh, uh, halal and haram are the two opposite right so haram is something forbidden and hence not acceptable and the word haram actually comes from uh, a root uh, which is in the bible and it has a cognate it's called haram okay haram means something which is forbidden okay and just like you have jihad they have something called haram warfare in christianity and in judaism in fact haram warfare is in many many orders of magnitude worse than jihad in jihad islam only teaches go and kill all the men or take them as slaves and enslave all the women and uh, turn them into concubines in the islamic haram that's why the world haram and haram haram they are all related they are all places forbidden to outsiders paris christianity and islam this go a step further what they say is wage a haram warfare and kill every man every woman every child and even every cattle okay leave nothing and only usurp their property okay so haram warfare is the mother of all jihads okay i talk about that in the book and it is worse and in many ways i find christianity to be more dangerous for two reasons reason number one islam is a bad religion and it does not try to wear a very uh, you know sexy makeup okay it comes across as a nasty religion and everyone is repulsed by that because when you look at a uh, what is the first image that you conjure up in your mind when you think of islam it's the isis the taliban the al qaeda and others those long beards the burqa and all these things and the first message you get is wait this religion subjugates women this religion subjugates children this religion has no tolerance and they throw you know hindus out of uh, pakistan kashmir bangladesh everything so it's an intolerant religion you get get that right but christianity evolves okay christianity has always evolved and it has acquired greater adaptive fitness okay it uh, speaks the language of modernity okay it's a pretty uh, it has a very evil core it has a very ugly core but then it wears a very pretty makeup on top of that okay so hence it looks uh, very sexy on the surface right and most people won't be able to figure it out and hence uh, you do not develop a defense mechanism against christianity okay that's one reason why it is more dangerous than islam and the second reason is let us hypothetically say that uh, thanks to your iphone thanks to internet thanks to facebook everything in the next few years all the islamic societies implode okay and hence islam gets significantly weakened and then the muslims look for an alternative what alternative would they see they are not going to embrace hinduism they are not going to embrace atheism they are not going to embrace reason because they have never been brought up in that kind of world view they are going to embrace something which resembles and which looks like christianity sorry which looks like islam and what is that christianity okay and even jesus is someone they are comfortable with because jesus is a prophet who is uh, revered and respected within the islamic tradition okay and hence if they abandon islam the next thing they would embrace is christianity okay and not reason not hinduism and not buddhism not any of these things and hence uh for these two reasons i find is uh, christianity to be more dangerous than islam uh and hence if we were to choose our battles and if we had to only fight one battle i would say fight christianity and when i say fight christianity i am not saying fight the christian people the christian people themselves are victims of christianity my fight is the fight against the ideology of christianity my fight is the fight against the person person of jesus and my fight is aimed to save christians from jesus
So hence, it's a fight against the ideology and not a fight against the people. I want to applaud that <laughs> because usually, you know, instead of Jesus saving the Christians, we are saving Christians from Jesus, and I really like how you put that. Yeah. Nice way to end. <laughs> So, so I think uh, you know we've all already gone on for two hours. Uh, if anyone wants to ask uh, questions to Kalvaji, I'll send you all his Facebook link, and you can add him on uh, your profile. And uh, so, on that note, I think we can conclude. Um, and from my side, thank you very again for uh, you know uh, answering our questions and giving us this long uh, book review. And thank you very much for organizing this, uh, Prashantji. And uh, thanks everyone for uh, your very active particip participation. All the really good questions. And uh, I hope you know we can make this a more recurring exercise. And we can also deep dive into any one section, get into a lot more details in the future. But thanks a lot, and I really enjoyed this. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.